Hey everybody, talkingbook.pub is a non-profit audiobook publisher of independent literature. We are located in Asheville, North Carolina, and because we are a nonprofit, uh, donations and help from people like you who love these books and love these recordings really helps a lot. So if you want to get involved, donate to our Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash talkingbook, or go to our website, talkingbook.pub, and read about our mission, send us an email, give us a call, whatever you want to do. But enjoy the episode. Thank you. Hey, everybody, how's it going? Chris Hartram here, Talking Book Podcast, Asheville, North Carolina. You know, usual thing, hanging out. Uh, talk to authors um, about books that we recorded with them. Um, it's usually how it works here, sometimes differently. But super pumped today because our good buddy Sebastian Matthews, who is an Asheville native, who wrote the book Beginner's Guide to a Head on Collision, um, which is something we recorded before we even started this podcast. Um, he came over, hung out with us. So he was on his own mic, you know, no phone calls, just, uh, the real deal. And he and I shot the shit, you know, about, about the book, about the writing life, about being in that car wreck, um, you know, that, that triggered, um, him writing this book. And it's just a great time. Sebastian's awesome. He's a, a huge help to talking book to the nonprofit, um, he's a big part of it. Consider him one of the family now. Um, but anyway, here's my conversation with Sebastian Matthews, author of Beginner's Guide to a Head-On Collision, out now from Red Hymn Press. I'll be going out into L.A., um... Uh, April 20th or so for uh, the book festival. That's another kind of cool scene. I know. And I've never been there before. Damn. So do that and, and give a reading with some friends and um, hang with my brother. Who's Your coming, brother? Yeah, he's coming down from Seattle to see his daughters. Huh. Who are like 27 and 22. It's kind of amazing. Who's older? He is. He's okay. fi- I'm 52. He's 54. Right. So yeah. pretty close then. 18 months, yeah. How many siblings do you have? I have three. I have another brother who is um, five years younger, adopted, and we didn't really know him as a kid. He was my my mom and stepdad adopted him when he was fourteen. Oh wow! Kind of at the like the last chance for this guy in a way. He was kind of headed towards institution or just something very un, you know, family oriented. He was just kind of bouncing and bouncing and bouncing, and they they heard about him and they just said and grabbed him. Wow, that's guy, cool, Manny. Manny. Manny, Manny Weeks, Manuel, he's from Puerto Rico. Oh, cool. But his connection to Puerto Rico is is, is really from Springfield, Mass, you know. Uh, so we, we took him to Puerto Rico, and I think my brother and I had more Spanish than he did. Oh, wow, that's We don't funny. have much. <laughs> so. so there's three of you total, one adopted, you and your brother, yep. Manny, yourself. What was your other brother's name? Bill. Bill. Yeah. Love that name, brother Bill. Bill. Yeah, he's a good man. No, no girls in that clan. Oh, God, no. <laughs> God, no. no. Same have, with me, we, four boys. Yeah. No girls, yeah. Yeah. Mm. And my wife's is a, the oldest of three girls, so I think she was happy to have a boy, I think. Sure. Because it was, it was like, let's not replicate what I just went through and, and kind of perpetuate right. <laughs> the crazy girl thing, you know? And I was like, and I'm used to the boy thing, so. Right. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, talking about that, you know, I just had my second son, mm-hmm. and... uh 
I grew up in a family of boys and on that same, that same wavelength, you know, there's part of me before we talked about this, but part of me that was like, okay, I want a girl because I never had sisters and I want to, you know, learn that side of existence. Right. And then when, when it was a boy and it came out, so I have two boys now, there was this, you know, safe sigh of relief. Like, I know this, (laughs) this is what I know, you know, but he'll, He'll get you there. Oh yeah, he'll, he'll, they're gonna get me, Max and Woody. Yeah, yeah. You got to meet Woody next time. I'm sure they'll like bust in. That's great. Before you have to go. Yeah, yeah but uh, but let's uh, pump the brakes for a second. So you asked me a second ago about you know what what brought me here. We came from Brooklyn, yeah. but give me you know it's funny because we've been hanging out a lot. We recorded your book, uh, Beginner's Guide to Head On Collision, and. You know, I don't really know a lot about your background specifically. You know, I know who your father is. Yeah. and uh, But other than that, how'd you get to Asheville? Yeah, that's a good question. It's been almost 20 years now, which is kind of wild. Uh, we came in 99, uh, my wife Allie and I. Um, our boy is now almost 15. So we came just us and then he arrived. And um, we came from Michigan, Ann Arbor. We were in grad school, actually. I had finished, right. well, I, my wife was. She got a PhD and I was, I had, when I met her, I was one year through a MFA. And so I met her and I was kind of passing through. I was like, I'm going to go on to Seattle or I'm going to go back to Portsmouth. I had kind of moved a lot. So she was like, ah, stay for a month, you know, stay for the summer, get a job, stay for another six months, you know, and kind of trick me really right. to stay. Huh. And it was a great move for to stay. I needed to stay. I needed to settle. I needed to commit to one person. I needed to make some money, learn how to get a job, you know, really kind of uh, slow down. I was kind of just one of those all over the place young guys. And um, How old were you at this time? Uh, it was four years out of college. Right. Five years after when I met her. Yeah. So, and she was five. She's five years younger. Okay. And um, she, I stayed around and I taught for, you know, the four or five years it took for her to finish and really learned that I love teaching. I taught ESL. Um, I taught... Um, Adjunct at, at Michigan, and I taught um, part time at a community college. Did some tutoring and that kind of stuff. So sure. I was like, I like I like teaching. You know, I kind of I realized it, and um, and then she said, "Okay, we'll move. Where do you want to go? You know, you stayed for me. We'll go where you want." And I was like, just about to say Seattle, and she said, "But I did get this cool job offer down in Nashville." Huh? And I was like, "Well, let's go check it out." And we came down here, and it was actually winter, and it was snowing. And it was it was just we had thought maybe we'd go to Burlington or Seattle, sure. and, um, kind of one you know one coast or the other, right. close to the coast. And uh, this place just kind of hit a lot of those the kind of bells. It was like it's a cool, and even though it's it was nothing like it is now in terms of its full on kind of you know look at me I'm Sandra D hipster you know scene. It was a small art town. It had music. It had just, it was a small literary scene. It what was, year would that have been around? This is 99. 99, okay. Yeah. And we had both gotten jobs at Warren Wilson when we came because she got the job and they gave me a, you know, kind of a, a good job, but not as full, just kind of a half-time sure. job. And I didn't really want more than a half-time job. So, so she teaches as well? Your wife does? She did when we, we, when we first got out of school. Okay. But she stopped teaching about, I don't know, seven or eight years ago. And did administrative stuff instead, mm-hmm. and then um, now does consulting. So, so cool. she's moved away from teaching. Sure, yeah. So that's how we got here. 
Huh. And, uh, 1999, I bet Asheville was, as you were kind of yeah. leaning into, just an incredibly different scene at that time. Yeah, I mean, it, it had all the elements, you know, but it, but like Salsa's was the one really hip restaurant. Salsa's downtown? Yeah. Weird, and, okay. Yeah, and the one on Wall Street, the um, which is one of the first restaurants, I'll, I'll remember, the Marketplace. And, you know, Mark, obviously Malaprops. And the movie theater, and you know, they're like the, the the things that were the what I've learned since. Those were the kind of p- pieces that got put together in the early '90s, mid '90s. Malaprops, Fine Arts Theater, and some of those restaurants. The Spiral Gallery, the Marketplace, and they created this kind of and salsas. The uh, guy who did salsas ended up doing Zambra, right? And so it just kind of built on that, you know. And it had UNCA, it has UNCA, and it has Warren Wilson. And it just it has the you know the kind of retiree, um, but then and then the music scene, but as you you know it's gone from that to you know they had just I think it had started for a few years when we got there, but I think it was the Highland Brewery was the only brewery in town. That was the first one, the first like yeah. legit brewery kind yeah. of interesting. Yeah, no, maybe it was Green Man in Highland, but they were like those two and the Green and the Green Man um, pub. Um, the is it called the Green Man? Or well, there is Green Man. I always get Green Man and Wicked Wee confused. Oh, yeah, they're no, not the no, same no, company, right? No, 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 no. no. Okay. no the Green Man. Um, but that that bar downtown that was our favorite bar too. And Jack of the Wood. Jack of the Wood. That's it. Another yeah. version of the Green Man. And See, uh, that's funny. That's classic. Those are the places that when I first started coming here, it was probably you know I was at, at college at App State. Um, and so this is early two thousands. Two thousand. So you so you've also. I, I will. I dabbled in just coming here and yeah. hanging out. Like for us, you know, I was a college kid in 2004, five, six, around there. Yeah. Um, so maybe around 2003 or four, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly, we would come to Asheville for yeah. festivals and music and check it out yeah. and go to bars where they had liquor to sell because in Boone it was kind of dry, just beer and wine inside yeah. the city. But anyway, I do remember it definitely had this kind of uh, 90s vibe, uh, cool town, but not too big of a deal. Yeah interesting mountainy and now you you're here and it's yeah it's just, totally different yeah 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 it's and you know for good and for bad i mean there's some parts that are really are frustrating the way we're growing i think we're growing too fast you know i sure. think all these boutique hotels you know blah blah it's it, you know gentrification is kind of a, a blight but at the same time you know there's some amazing stuff going on and amazing people coming here and it seems like a rejuvenated place um in terms of the art scene right and um festivals it's it's fun yeah. yeah it's it's a great city it's interesting to to think about where it kind of started you know with like thomas wolf and all these kinds of elements of like its literary history and the black mountain college black mountain college another huge part nearby yeah it actually just because it's fun we've talked about it before but give me like a little if you don't mind like how did black mountain college interact with Asheville? do you know the story of that i mean i know yeah, obviously I mean, that was a long time ago no but. you know there's people there at the at the Black Mountain College Museum and Art Center. I just ran into uh, Alice Sebril on the way here, actually, um, yeah. who know this story better than I. But I was worked for them and was on their board for a while and loved that. I love the Black Mountain legacy. And mm-hmm. but what I you know they it's it was a place to come to right. It was a place to um, it's the county seat you know and um, so I know that a lot of the folks in the 30s. And there was, you know, basically there were two versions of it in sense of location. There was the first campus um, at the um, Blue Ridge Center, I think it's called. And then the second second campus, which is where in Lake Eden, where Leaf is. Um, and I think they, you know, Black Mountain was their town, but I think they came in and 
and pass through it on, in and out. I think a lot of, and I think they used it um, the way anybody who lives a little bit out of a, you know, in the country uses a city. Sure. But I'm not sure. It'd be interesting to know, like, what maybe were the, if any, kind of connections with local. Yeah, I'm. Folks I'm wondering, who, like, did the local folks even know? Well, I know that the local folks in Black Mountain were kind of freaked out about. Well, I, yeah, I guess the local folks in Black Mountain would have, but like, were were the uh, local like Asheville City people were they like extremely aware about this phenomenon, or was it more just like uh, I wonder what they're doing? I don't know. I yeah. know that um, Warren Wilson College, which was at that time um, more of a, a high school for boys, like farm school, huh. um, they shared like like. Tre- chairs and like they had you know and they probably had some functions together so there was an awareness between those two right um and you know there was uh i don't know it, you know it makes me think of like it's a weird connection but biltmore estate and the biltmore you know that place would when it first started was a, as a house would bring these amazingly rich and kind of you know international folks to it right and that's what black mountain college did in the summers as well i mean it but it was like all the amazing artists and critics, you know, coming from New York, coming from all over the country, coming from all over the world in some cases, to check out that incredible place for the summer session. And so it had this, so I imagine they, Asheville, Paris of the South, there was probably a little sense of it as a tourist attraction then. Yeah, I bet. Um, Yeah, that's wild, man. If you think about Black Mountain College or you think about you know, something as iconic as Biltmore. Yeah. Asheville really does have this crazy, cool, interesting history that has influenced, you know. It does, it does. And it's a real fraught, you know, it's got its, you know. Yeah. You know, the, the, the Biltmore stories, you know, moving a whole town, you right. know, uh, creating a town, mm-hmm. you know. Um, his relationship with the African-American community was very mixed, I think, in mm-hmm. some cases. Uh, benevolent, yeah. benevolent dictator, in some cases, right. really just a kind of slumlord. You sure. Know? Um, not so much slumlord, it's the wrong term, but, um, you know, not so much caring about where people live. And- Problematic kind of relationship. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Yeah. It's a crazy place. You know, I, uh, we only have lived here for, what's it been now? 2003 going on. This is our fourth year. So no. about three years now we've yeah. lived in Asheville. And, you know, when I first came here with, uh, Danny, you know, like I said, we went to college at App State and we went to, um, we would come to Asheville a bit. So we knew the mountains and we knew Western and sea, but we thought this would maybe be like a stop off to yeah. have, to have the kids. Right. Yeah. And it wasn't until like a year in, I started kind of falling for it yeah. and being like, man, we could really have some fun here, do some cool stuff. Yeah. You know, this sounds like a great, and does she feel like, did she kind of feel the same way? Well, or yeah. Does- yeah it's, it's pretty crazy because I was like, you know, Oh, Tokyo is the greatest city in the world. And she was like, New York's the greatest city in the world. And we're both like, well, we can't have kids there right now. We don't have any money. And we're like, let's go back to Western and see. Seems yeah. like a positive place. Yeah. And we both got here, we kind of begrudgingly moved here to have yeah. kids, you know. Um, but we had lots of friends. I had family. So yeah. it was, you know, still a, a comfortable idea. But yeah, I mean, now if you asked either of us, of course, like we love it. Yeah. You know, it's my favorite place. Yeah. It does hook you. Yeah. It kind of happened to you. I mean, you were just saying like, yeah. you're like, yeah, we'll try it. Yeah. We, we were kind of like, we'll do this for a couple of years. If it doesn't work, we'll do sure. something else. And and then when you have a kid, it really does, you look at the place differently too. I mean, it's a good place to have a kid. Mm-hmm. There's really good schools at all different kind of in all different ways, you know, good private schools, good public schools, good charter schools, you know, kind of, you know, very, a wide range, you know, a whole cool unschooling, no schooling kind of 
scene and uh, I didn't know that. That's cool. oh yeah. I was I was homeschooled cool. when I was young. Just my mom was super into like um, the other side, not religion, but like very progressive, modern, like academic. Uh, educating philosophies yeah so non-schooling homeschooling all that i was involved in that kind of stuff oh, i love that stuff i didn't yeah. do that as a kid but but i i liked it from afar you yeah know? i think neither of my parents could have done that <laughs> i mean right. they were smart enough and educators but i don't think they would have wanted to be that kind of parent He's, like fully responsible for the education of the children yeah 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 <laughs> yeah it'd be interesting yeah you're, uh, you know, just because I, my kids are young and stuff, when, with your son growing up, was there ever, because Asheville has so many choices, this is like now a dorky parenting question, yeah. but uh, was there ever any thought like, should he go to public, should he go oh. to private, Montessori, yeah. private, um, homeschool, you know, did you well, have that? Well, at first, not at all. We were, um, I was a public school kid. I moved a lot, so I went to a lot of different kind of public schools. And uh, um, Allie had gone to public school up until high school, uh, and then she went to a prep school. So we were like, you know, let's do public school. This is a great place. You know, mm -hmm. we did Hawk Creek. And then middle school started to kind of wheel into view. And we were like, you know, I hated middle school. I went to a couple of different ones in two different settings and and uh, just was kind of got bullied. It was didn't have a good time. Didn't really learn that much. I just mm -hmm. wanted to, it was like a holding tank, I felt like. It was like, get me out of here. And um, so we heard about French Broad River Academy, which is an incredible school that now does for it was for boys but now they have a, a school for girls sixth seventh eighth and it's private it's ex relatively expensive but it well it's an outdoor education kind of oh, experiential right. um just amazing people amazing teachers uh you know inc incredible three years and you know they go to costa rica every year as a school wow they do service projects everything's based around the river um we, when we were there, they were in the old space. By the time halfway through, they moved, they built and moved into a new space. And then, so, you know, eco-friendly, just engaged. He loved it. But by the time we were done with that, we wanted back into public school. And he's back at Asheville High. And um, he really wanted to be, a, you know, a little fish in a big pond. And right. we felt, you know, bubble within a bubble, even though it's a great place. It was like we wanted broader social and, and just kind of, just a different, you know, get him up against and hanging out with and, and interacting with a wider range of kids and teachers right. and a lot more diversity. And, yeah. yeah. I mean, there was some diversity there, but it, you know, they're, they're, um, worth checking out. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I'm definitely going to, it, it's, it's a, it's kind of a mind boggling how many choices there are, which is a good thing. But then yeah. you're like, what the hell should I do? I know. Yeah. That's funny. So, uh, going back even further, you said you moved around a lot as yeah. a kid. So, you know, you kind of just started off at, uh, you know, Ann Arbor and yeah. meeting your now wife. What was the childhood like for some Oh, you know, divorced parents. Okay. Divorced when I was five. Both writers and, and um, in my dad's case, an academic. He, you know, he started moving around and doing that kind of a move to a job, to a job. You know, you know all kind of, you know, a lot of creative, especially in the early, you know, the early part of the creative writing kind of, you know, scene, which was, which started not too long ago in a way. You know, it's all mm -hmm. English departments and, so now we all think of creative writing departments as it's everywhere, you know, in MFAs, but that wasn't the case back in the, you know, the mid seventies. And so he started to just get a job and then move to the next job and kind of build his, his, his kind of credentials. My mom was more, a little more, uh, I want to say hippie, but just wasn't interested in the academic route and more interested in kind of living on land, living on the land and community and, um, 
So she eventually settled in New Hampshire, in the southern New Hampshire, hmm. with my stepdad Charter, and they they live literally on a kind of a commu- in a community from the that started in the seventies and has grown and, and I mean not grown but has kind of stayed um, in large in, in many ways the same ever since. It's a great kind of beautiful kind of Eden. Um, but my dad moved every year for you know, so I moved from so quickly like upstate New York to. New Hampshire, and then my dad moved to the Massachusetts while I was in New Hampshire, and then he moved to Iowa, and then my mom moved somewhere else in New Hampshire, and then he moved to Colorado, and then she settled where she was settled now, and then he moved to Seattle. Um, for a while, he moved to Houston while I was in Seattle. So and you were with your mother during I, this, this period? No, I moved the first um, from first grade to fifth grade with my mom and then from sixth grade to through high school with my dad. Oh, cool. So kind of two doses. Yeah. And two a, lifestyles. A, yeah. Right around high school, my mom was like, okay, maybe come back. And I was like, sorry, I love you. But Seattle, urban high school, <laughs> right? small school, in New Hampshire. Uh-uh. I, I, Seattle was just amazing. I love right. Seattle. So I spent, I, so I spent four years in Seattle, five years, middle school and high school. And I just really loved it there. Yeah. That's cool because Seattle's come up a couple times in this conversation. Yeah. So like I yeah. can see you have a lot of connection there. Your brother still. He still lives there. Yeah. yeah. And um, then I went to college in Southern California and then did some traveling and then ended up in Michigan. So it was a bunch of moving. That's the uh, the journey of Sebastian. There it is. I love it. Yeah, peripatetic. <laughs> so, okay. So two, uh, two parents that are both writers, um, how did that, I'm just assuming it did, how did that influence you know, yourself, uh, to be a writer. I mean, was it very active? Was it like, uh, was it the classic, like I'm a football player. So my son's going to play, or is it more like you organically were like, I am a writer too, I guess. More the organic, like my brother's a, uh, painter and a, he he teaches, um, he's a drum teacher, hand drum, African hand drum. So he's obviously, you know, very creative and into the, in the, we joke that we're kind of a, a griot class, the kind of white boy griot. Uh, I call it gringo griot, you know, the, the idea of a kind of artist class that you mm-hmm. talk about in some African cultures. And, um, you know, my, my dad was a, is a poet and a teacher, was my mom, poet, um, also a teacher in, di- in a lot of different ways. My, my aunt is a modern dancer, my stepdad's a photographer, you know, so it's all kind of either teaching and, and art or writing. And so for me, it was osmosis. I just loved the scene. Right. You know, it was just... It was cool. It was late 70s, early 80s. And um, there were some, my mom was in the theater kind of world for a while and musicians and uh, artists in the parties. And it just, it seemed like, what else would you do? Mm-hmm. You know, maybe the other response would be like to run screaming and, you know, go to business school. But right. There was, are, is there any, are there any uh, black sheep, the the one lawyer or doctor no, in the no, art my, family? No, my boy is going to be that. He's going to. He's not interested in any of that, which is great. Yeah. I mean, did you find, I mean, I feel like that happens to a lot of kids though. Like, you know, they, they, they say they're not interested in the thing that they're surrounded by, but then maybe sometimes it clicks much later. Uh, for you, was it always there to want to have that kind of life or was yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it was just, you know, romantic, you know, in the capital R, maybe over romanticized, but I went to a college, a Pitzer college out in, in, in Claremont out in LA. And that school had a kind of romantic throwback feel. It felt like a school that was, you felt like you're a decade or 15 years back. Oh yeah. The teachers were kind of wild. There was smoking in class, a lot of pot and 
it was uh, a lot of acid and a lot of, you know, kind of, it was a, it was a, it felt like I was touching a, you know, I was always feeling like as a kid, I was going touching a world. I wanted to be, you know, a beatnik, you know, I wanted to be Kerouac. I wanted to be, then I learned some more and I wanted to go further back. I wanted to go in the twenties, you know, and sure. And so um, that sense of the, all the books and the music, you know, I don't think about that much, but when you, you know, when you're reading all these books and listening to all this music, you're kind of, you're living in different, in your head, in different places, in different times. And so, yeah, I don't think I ever, ever thought I was going to be anything but a writer. Wow. Yeah. Uh, the teaching part was the was surprise. Cause that I was, was like, that was the searching. Well, I was just like, I don't want to be a teacher. My parents did that. It's just, you know, eh, you know, and then I realized I needed to make money to do what I was going to do. Right. And I realized I like teaching and not all writers and artists can teach or want to teach, but right. I had, you know, I had, I realized I had some of the skills mm-hmm. and I realized I wanted to learn the other stuff, which I, I realized now it takes a long time <laughs> to right. learn to be a really good teacher. Um, That's interesting because you, uh, you know, I never really knew, I guess that you were a teacher before we got into your background a little bit more, but I mean, even just, conversationally the way that you've kind of been a helpful and been you know starting to be almost a mentor as to talking book and and some of us like I can that as you said not everybody can do it there's that that little detail of that um, comfortable sharing of information that's not condescending and it is it is a very special craft that not everyone can do I think yeah and and, you know I I have and I stopped teaching a couple I teach a little bit but I stopped about four or five years ago and I, I think I got to, got to be a, a, a really strong teacher in some ways, and I also saw where I was, where my weaknesses were, hmm. and they were often the weaknesses were kind of character stuff, like just not always having the. You know, I think now at fifty two, I'm a little more balanced, a little more centered, and would probably my students would probably have benefited from that a little less, kind of all over the place emotionally. I mean, I would try to hone that, you know get that in control and go into the classroom. But it was sometimes, you know, things throwing a chair once, I think not at anybody, but, uh, but that's, um, that's kind of cool though, because yeah. there's like those uh, classic writing teachers yeah. that were famous for their antics, but it gave them legendary yeah. status. Maybe that was you. I hope. Yeah. Infamous. <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't know about that, but it was, um, was, was it? it Barry Hanna was one and like, uh, I oh, think God. Gordon Lish was one and like, you know, classics well, like that. Well, I mean, for me, college, you know, teachers were the, were the big deal, you know? Right. It was a, a man named Barry Sanders, who's a great writer and great thinker. Um, we took, we took Barry, you know, we took Barry 101, sure. 201, 301, it didn't matter what he taught. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, but the- for, but, but for back to teaching in the sense of what I realized was I like to teach workshops and when you teach a workshop, you don't teach it, you lead a workshop. Mm. And when you lead a workshop, you really don't, If you, I think if you get really good at it, you don't really lead. You lead from the back. You kind of orchestrate it and you, and you collaborate with the students. Um, so when I figured out that's where my strengths were, um, then I started kind of finding that place where I was happy with, with what I was doing. Um, but the, the hard part, I think, and it happens to all my friends who are teachers and writers talk about it is it's hard to balance the creative work and the teaching, you know? And if you're serious about teaching, you want to give 120%. Right. And universities, especially colleges like Warren Wilson, expect 120. Right. 
And then you got partners or family or, you know, you got your life. And a lot of folks drop the writing. Right. I mean, it's competitive nowadays, too. Because, oh, it's super competitive. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, and um, and so, you know, it's kind of world's smallest violin when you, when you complain too much about, you <laughs> right. know, having a job. But you, but that balance is hard. And sure. I was always one who said, I'm a writer who teaches. Right. You know, and sometimes that was, you know, kind of worst of both. I wasn't that great a writer and I wasn't that great a teacher. And when I would get into that groove or rut, I'd be like, this is not right. This is not working. I need to be a really good teacher. I need to be a really good writer. Right. And so you have to find that balance. That reminds me of uh, something kind of uh, memorable that you told me once um, when we were hanging out at uh, High High Five. And, you know, we were talking about talking book and why we started in this first place. And, you know, I was telling you, like, you know, not to get into personal stuff for me, but, you know, working a bunch of jobs to make talking book happen while also trying to write. And And you were like, I got two kids and you were like, just remember the reason that you started this was to live that life so you know you got don't let the writing go yeah. you know what i mean yeah, so I, did, I, I did yeah that that I, that's i've probably been thinking about that phrase you said yeah. night nightly yeah you know so what's well, a good one i mean it, it, you know i feel like especially i mean i don't know i mean there's some folks whatever you end up doing and you, and you love it that's good right i don't think be, being a writer is the best thing in the world i think it's you know it, it you're kind of like somebody said, I forget who said it, but like basically try to do anything else. Like really. Right. Try to do anything else. Mm-hmm. And if you can't, then go for it. You know, because right. there's a lot of other ways to live in this world. Um, but if you really want to be an artist, then you have to you have to hold that ground. You have to fight for it. Because as a dad, as a as a as a partner, as a friend, as an employee, as a citizen in this day and age where you're you know like there's a the march today there's things the world wants you to do a whole bunch of other things and 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 you should do a lot of them and and you could or you would but you but the touchstone for the 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 creative artist is the creative work everything Mm -hmm. comes out of the creative work so if you're not doing your creative work as a practice as much daily as you can or as much you know within the flow of your life uh, I think you're cutting off a source that feeds something like talking book mm-hmm. um, or feeds, you know what I mean? Or feeds you know, your relationships. And you know, so if you're drying up in that way or letting yourself kind of get walled, walled off from it, 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 it seems like you have to kind of say, do I really want that? And then if you do, you want to, you have to fight for it. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Very good words. I mean, that's the, as you said, the world's smallest violin. It's like, oh, you can't be an artist. I'm I know. sorry, I you know? know. But I mean, it, obviously, that to people who who give a shit about it is it is the thing and uh, something. The best of us forget that that little detail, you know. And we all know the book or the painting or the piece of music or whatever it is that you know didn't just entertain you, you know, blew your head off, right, and, and changed who you were, or made you see the world differently, and you know. Who knows? I'm not sure I'll be able to do something like that, but that's the goal. Right. Right. Because I want to, you know, you have the book, we all have our books and our CDs or whatever they are now that represent like, people say, why do you have so many books? It's like, well, A, I want to touch them and get back into them and hang out with them. But part of me is also they're like talismans. There's like that book 
was my, when I was 18, that was the book mm -hmm. that taught me how to, you know, and then that was the book, you know, so there's a way that, um, I think that just to kind of circle around, I think that for me making something that has weight or has power or energy or heat that, that does something for somebody, that's the goal, you know? Right. And I think that's important stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't agree anymore. Yeah. I mean, so, so speaking of your own writing then, you know, that's probably a good segue. You know, the reason you and I first met up is myself and, and Dave who, uh, God bless Dave. He couldn't be here today. He's also burning midnight oil. So yeah, he's can doing do this. The, he's doing yeah. the same thing we're talking about. Yeah. Um, yeah, we made a beginner's guide to head on collision. Um, and, you know, the way these conversations work a lot is, you know, we'll have a chat and then at the, at the end, you know, we'll play an excerpt. Good. It's kind of a, kind of a reading, you know, it's an excerpt awesome. of the book. Uh, but yeah, let, let's talk about that for a minute. I mean, talking about, you know, the importance of being an artist and these books is you know, talismans and, and, uh, growing up and the writing, you know, seeping in, where'd this book come from? How did it start? Yeah. How, how many books have you written before this one or yeah. you know, what's the story? Well, there? this is the fourth book, um, uh, for me. And, um, the first one was a memoir about my dad and about getting together with Allie and our relationship and what happened after he died. He died young and kind of surprised, kind of suddenly, mm. um, and then I wrote, kind of put together two collections of poems. And then this is kind of a, a hybrid book, kind of a somewhat of a memoir and, and, a, and a collection of poems. And this one really comes out of the crash. I mean, we were in a head-on collision. It came out of the blue. And um, within a couple of days, I was jotting things down. You know, it was, I, I tend to, I, I now realize I tend to write kind of back at what happens to me. And so as a the new work I'm doing is tr I'm trying to change that and I'm trying to go out into the world and, and witness more and, and, and report on and, and engage in something, not so much let whatever comes to me be right. part of the story that I'm writing. Like actively seek content as opposed to. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. But for a long time, it's just like, okay, I'm just going to live my life and what comes I'll, I'll try to, to interact with. So that, you know, my father dies, I end up writing a book about him, you know, uh, we get hit, hit by a car. I end up writing a book about the crash. Um, and the poems often for me are that way too. I'm walking around, an idea comes or something happens and the, the poem comes out of that experience. It can be limited or limiting, but it also, you know, it, it, it works. Um, so this is very much in that vein. And it, really the book probably formed as a book when I took a challenge to try to, about six months out, can I capture what happened? Can I, on the page for myself, not so much literarily, just like, can I write down what happened? Mm -hmm. You know, and so the first attempt was I wrote 30 poems in 30 days and none of them was really about the accident. And I was trying to write about it. So I felt like I kind of failed. Right. But those were the Dear Virgo poems. And actually I love those poems. Yeah. So I didn't fail. I just f did something else. I kind of went around it, you know, and um, and what I realized is I wrote about the shame and the pain and the kind of self-hatred and all the stuff that ha comes around post-accident recovery. So, and, and the, so those poems were also about the wreck too in that way. They were. Yeah, very oh, yeah. much. Yeah. But they were more about kind of like this one part of the self looking at the other part of the self and kind of saying, you know, you suck, mm -hmm. you know, like, you know, kind of just 
not happy with the situation and not able to regulate <laughs> emotional um, appropriateness. You know, I mean, I think, you know, you see it with siblings and couples and, you know, when you really love someone and you're in close quarters, you just bicker and you tease sure. each other and you add each other mm. and you love each other and, you know, you're, you're meshed with each other. And so in some ways, these were two parts of myself doing that. Um, but then I was like, no, come on, man, write about the accident. And so I wrote Beginner's Guide to a Head-On Collision, like mo first moment. And then I wrote a poem that was like the moment that I looked over and saw that Allie was alive and not dead, which was wild. And then at the same time realizing my boy was fine. You know, then the next moment realizing I was stuck in the car. I was literally jammed into the car. I couldn't get out, yeah. um, which was freaked, freaked me out. I'm claustrophobic, so I did not. Oh, shit. My feet were jammed into the well. And so... That part with your feet in the book is uh, like, my, like my feet were hurting reading it, uh, you know? Yeah, I still deal with, I deal with that every day. Um, I mean, literally, my feet are still... Like phantom pain or the pain is no, li literal? It's literal. There. It's literal. And, yeah. it's, and it's also... Um, that was sparkling water. That wasn't a beer. Um, LaCroix. LaCroix break. Yeah, but I'll have my... Yeah. <laughs> and um, no, my feet, you know, I have to work on them hard not to get them arthritic and and you know my left ankle hurts all the time and but Damn. it is what it is you know yeah, now sure. 52 so and i also am a walker i walk every day so but you're a total badass because you no one would know that yeah. you were ever in such a horrific accident well, so you wear it well thanks you know. but you should see me at like six in the morning when i get up <laughs> i'm like an old man <laughs> well my son says i am an old man um so yeah so that's how this book happened and then the real cool thing was my the editor at red hand press kate kind of challenged me i turned the book in and i was really happy with it i had its structure i thought it was strong and she's like i think it needs more i'm like no 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 it's done longer shorter at that time she said no she, she said add prose add prose add prose and i was like what do you mean she's like can you write about the same accident in a different mode and see what happens and i wrote this essay called recovery which is really the the four sections of the prose that start and then kind of interweave and then end interweave inside the book and then end the book um, are four parts of like a seven-part essay. So I mm -hmm. kind of broke the essay into a smaller essay and put it in there. And once I did that, the book felt like it was, she had really nailed it. It was awesome. it's, a, it's a stronger book. I What's think. the name of that editor? Just give her Kate a Kate Cool. Yeah, she's a poet and, uh, and uh, a great editor. Shout out. Yeah, Redhead Books is, is, is a cool press. Yeah, we're really pumped to, to meet up with them. It's funny that I, I thought for a, a long time, because I always knew who they were. I thought they were in Carolina for some reason, but they're yeah. in LA. They're in LA, Pasadena. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So how was it? What was it like working with Red Hand there? I sounded fantastic, obviously. They are. They, they're they're growing and, and deepening as a press um, in the 10 years, I think, that I've been with them now. Yeah. Um, and I think I've always kind of was a little bit like, and they had a rep for a while of being a little too scattered, a little bit biting off more they can, than they can chew. I know what that's like. Yeah. And it, but when you're doing a press and you have like, you know, the authors are so, we're so needy. We're sure. so insecure. Mm-hmm. We're such prima donnas <laughs> that, that, you know, we're like, you know, we want the certain attention and, you know, and they're two steps behind and we're going to get it to you. And so when I kind of realized that's the way they were and that actually that's kind of the way I am, I was like, you know what, this is my press, you know? And so I kind of, Kate and I sat down and, you know, I said, listen, this is what kind of frustrates me. And she's like, well, this is what frustrates me about authors who, you know, ask so much and don't give that much back. Right. And I was like, you know, you, she's right. This is a collaboration. You know, 
we're, we have to do our own PR as much as they give us help, give us help. We have to, you know, we're, we're, what, what are we going to give them? You know, mm-hmm. what are, are we going to give any uh, donations? Are we going to help them promote their press, other authors? Are we, you know, how, how much are we going to give back into what they're doing? Kind of like talking, but, you know, talking book, you guys are looking for collaborations with people. And so when I saw that was the case, then I just kind of realized, nah, this is fine. This is fine. And probably all small presses are like this. Right. You know, um, that's a good, that's a good way to put it though. I mean, uh, you know, for us, because we're an audio publisher, you know, it's slightly different, but you know, people write a book, they have a book, they have a publisher, you know, and what we're looking for, as you said, like we're looking for, Hey, do you want to work with us and create something badass? Yeah. You know, so I I like the way you put that. That's cool. And, you know, they're doing it because they love good literature and they love books and they, you know, and they're also, they are Pasadena LA press, you know, they're part of the LA book festival. They're part of, they have a part of the LA um, review and, Mm. You know, she's a teacher and, and her husband's a designer and they, they have a lot of interns. Her, their daughter's beginning to do a queer imprint for their press. Wicked. Toby. Oh, she's amazing. Cool. And um, that idea of, you know, it's all in the family kind of. And, you know, and, and the, the the stable of writers, the, the writers that they're taking, are, it's a, a wide ranging, diverse group. And so part of me feels like, you know, I'm, I mean, part of me is that's the family for me, you know. Sure. And I want to live up to that level, you know, help them if I can raise their level. He's certainly not keeping, you know, lower their level. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I can totally relate to that. They sound great. I mean, we're the same family operation. Yeah. Like four of us. Yeah. You know, that's that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. I need to hit them up. So, uh, you know, real quick, just talking about the the accident itself, because I think yeah, I find it interesting and I know people will. Like when I was, you know, read the book, whew, that was intense. Yeah. And then when it was being edited, you know, it's more of a you know, um, it's a technical process. Dave is really in the trenches with that. Yeah, you he's, know? he's amazing. And then once it's, you know, we'll go through it, proof it, rearrange stuff, decide on, you know, yep. pace, blah, blah, blah. But then when I listened to it the last time, yeah. it's kind of like the, all right, it's been listened to four times, one more time, proof it, make sure right. it's Make sure it cool. sounds right. Yeah. And I remember that time uh, was the time that I listened to it like uh, someone who would buy it, right? Yeah. Listener. And I remember there was, I think there was one point where I was like working out, listening to it and just kind of getting into it. And I had to like stop and walk over. And I was just like, like that, the, the pain, yeah. the pain yeah. of what that must have been like. Yeah. Like, damn. Those... Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I had a, I've had a different relationship with pain, you know, mm-hmm. I had a, or maybe I had my first relationship with pain. Um, and it was very challenging, but it was also very eye-opening you know it life is you know i mean it, it, it's it, i get kind of kind of billboard buddhist but you know it's life's not easy life's difficult you know and we're all going to die right and birth is you know i've never experienced and we, we we have avery's adopted so i never even really have participated in a birth but that's intense you know accidents are intense you know getting older your body you know doing its thing Basically, if you're present and, and alive in the world, you're surrounded by pain. And so, you know, what do we do to avoid it, not look at it? You know, the couple beers at night, the catching the movie, you know. But for me, staying awake is, and being present is the goal. Right. And so what that showed me in the moment was like, well, this is one thing that you get if you're, you know, like we're guy died he had a heart attack he swerved into our lane we were hit 
and the next moment we're alive, not dead, and we're stuck. You know, it's like next moment I'm in a helicopter. Next moment I wake up, it's next morning. You know, next moment is kind of like a day later. You know, surgery, and then that starts to calm down, and then it's like, you know, fucking this. You know, I'm in this bed. I'm in the, I'm in a wheelchair. You know, and and so, in some ways, it it's all normal, or it gets normalized pretty quickly. And so even pain, I think, gets normalized right um, and then or you have to come to terms with it you know and the the cliche but it's a good one it helped me was the way out is through and i talked about that in the book um uh, my my aunt susan is a dancer and she you know she works out every day she's like 72 now and she's like every day spin on bikes you know right. serious athlete and and she's just like you know you got to go through it you got to go through pain and mm. once you realize that um you know, the for me, the most intense part was probably the first 10 minutes, you know, because the pain started to come, you know, I, you know, the adrenaline was there, but then I, then it started to come and, and the kind of terror of the pain started to come. And so the the trick was to breathe. That's kind of what I learned. The trick right. was to breathe. Mm-hmm. You know, don't freak out. Right. <laughs> you know, and then you start freaking out. Don't sure. freak out. And then you start freaking out, you know, so... It's, yeah, it sounds kind of like uh, you said a moment ago. Um, being present and yeah. awake. Yeah, it sounds a little bit like uh, breathe. Don't freak out. Breathe. Don't freak out. It's kind of it reminds me of um, almost meditation in a way where you're like, you know, clearing your mind, clearing your mind. Suddenly, the clutter, the clutter, the clutter. Clear your mind. Yeah, clear the your monkey mind. mind. Yeah, 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 it's true. Yeah, I've always been a a real lazy and um, uh, not very thorough. Um, practicer and it's been years since I've really sat but I, I think it's the a really amazing way to go and I should do it more you know meditation bad me, bad me. yeah meditation. I'm gonna say I'm like a total yeah. uh, Sunday uh, yeah. Sunday you know yeah. love Buddhism and stuff like that and met transcendental meditation did but, that and we, the, we we just did actually I gotta give you um, we just published uh noah cicero's new book um blood soaked buddha hard earth pascal mm. and it's about like every that everyday presence buddhism and uh, i'd love to see it you right. you Listen would you would really dig it cool you would yeah it's you know yeah so for me maybe you know yeah i'm not sure what to say but but buddhism definitely or the idea of just practice and sitting and clearing your mind that got you through a little bit Without me even trying, yeah, you know, hmm. it was it wasn't like I it came to me. It was just like some part of me just kind of knew what to do. Right. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. That's intense stuff. I'm really excited to hear um, a reading uh, from the book right after we talk. Um, but uh, what do you uh, what are you working on now? What's going on now? Uh, two projects. Um, one is this American Crow. Um, I thought I turned that off. Sorry. Um, Life and Times of American Crow. It's that collage book. It's a novel, but oh it's, yeah, cool. It's book you talk about that. It's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's totally. It's crazy, and I'm kind of tired of it because it's been. <laughs> <laughs> I've been working on it for almost a, you know forever, and uh, um, and it's so many. It's so many layers. It's like I, not only is it like writing it and then making the artwork, but it's like putting it, constructing it, and then printing it and then constructing it again into this kind of book art box set thing, and then I have to send it out to people, and then. it's you know, it's I, I I don't know what I did to myself, but I I'm almost done. It's a beautiful object. Is it is it able to be uh, plugged yet? Is it is there a presence where you can see it yet, or not? Quite? No, there's a website, and but really, in some ways, I I've kind of I have a group of people, about 60, 70 people, who are getting the book serialized, and there's a box boxed 
it's a box that you can put it in. So everybody has that box. And so every, you know, a couple of months you get a new one. They're probably waiting for the last couple three. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but when it's done, I'm going to p- pitch it a different way and kind of maybe try to find a press to, to publish it less as a book art thing and more as kind of like an art book. Sure. Want, you know, kind of something that would be uh, more easy, easily packaged it, and sold or, yeah, or moved. And, or, yes. And yeah. less expensive. Right. And more probably easy to grasp what the hell it is. You sure. know, it's a, it's a very interesting monster. And then the other thing I'm working on are a series of what I call encounters, prose, mini kind of micro essays, one, two, three, four pages. And they've, I've written about 150 of them over the last three years. And they are just encounters with people on the street in airports and bars as I travel around Asheville, looking at, trying to look at in a broad way, race, class, and culture. And just thinking that, you know, we have so much stuff going on right now from when Obama was finishing his second term to where we are now, and so much has changed or gotten so extreme. I feel like you can, you know, I've started feeling about four years ago that you could really feel it, like, on the way, in the way people were driving, the way people dealt with each other in the supermarket. I could feel this incredible, I don't know what it was, but tension or, or discord Hmm. So I started trying to capture it, you know, and um, and then I realized that in some ways, you know, it, it kind of comes out of this book in the sense that I was coming out of my shell. It took me a couple of years to get back into the world and kind of get back into the, you know, you know, creative world. And I looked up and I was like, what happened? <laughs> I've been gone for five years and this place is a completely different place. It's like Planet of the Apes. Yeah. You kind of woke up yeah, and oh like, God. what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so... Um, That'd be a good New Yorker cartoon with yeah, Trump as the totally, tower. Right. Um, yeah. So that's what I've been doing, and it's been it's been really fun. I'm not sure where it's at. You know, I'm trying to organize it now as a book, um, but it's uh, it feels like something I can a small thing that I'm doing into to participate in this conversation that seems necessary to change what seems to have been you know a re- huge regression in this country Mm -hmm. and we need to, and I'm not an, I'm, I am, I'm a, as shoddy an activist as I am a Buddhist. Um, so (laughs) for me, the, the way I, I give is through arts organizations like Vermont studio center, working with you guys, um, you know, I try to participate in the arts at that level, Mm. um, you know, on boards, giving money, collaborating events, but then try to write in a way that, hopefully what I'm writing joins a bigger conversation. You know, the struggle is, as a 52-year-old white guy, I feel like, who needs to hear my voice, right? It's kind of, I was talking to a friend, I was like, they don't, it's not really, but then I'm thinking, no, no, that's not true. You know, everybody's got to wake up and everybody's got to, you know, do their thing. And so I think there needs to be, the white guy needs to 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 wake up. And, and if you can write a book that... Sh- shows some of that or, or points to some of that, that, maybe that's a good thing. No one's going to maybe listen to it, but still. <laughs> Sebastian Matthews. Yeah. I mean, couldn't agree with uh, more with everything you're saying. And uh, you have been, uh, you know, though you are a 52-year-old white guy. I know, it's true. <laughs> you, really, you, really, really, you know. You've been like, yeah, an yeah. indispensable family member to talking books. So uh, very, very well, we're quick. Just, we're just starting. We're just starting. We're yeah. just beginning this wild ride, this yeah. this relationship. But yeah. uh, 
Yeah, thanks so much for talking to me today, and uh, I'm pumped to hear an excerpt from uh, from the book. Oh, cool. Before I go, I just sure. want to say, one of the pieces in the new book is called White Dad Shoes, mm-hmm. and my my boy and his friend would t- I got these what I thought were really hip shoes in Montreal, <laughs> and I was walking around. They're just like, "Why are you wearing those White Dad shoes?" And it's just like these are not White Dad shoes, and then suddenly everything became White Dad. Oh shit! And I was like, you know, catching myself saying, "I'm the least White Dad, White Dad you've ever." And I was like, "Oh no, I'm in trouble." That's what a White Dad would that's, say. That's exactly what a White Dad would say. Well, you're you're from one White Dad to another. <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. You know, we're, we'll do our best. Yeah. Thanks, man. All right, that was me and Sebastian shooting the shit. Cool guy. Love him. Love him the pieces. Um, Now, let's listen to Sebastian read from the book, Beginner's Guide to a Head-On Collision. Um, You're going to like it. He's got a great voice because all of this shit actually happened to him. He was in the wreck. Uh... And it's a really cool book. Um, Yeah, take a listen. You're driving up into the mountains for a weekend getaway when a sedan veers into your lane. Your car is moving approximately 50 miles per hour. So is the other automobile, which is being driven by a man in the throes of a heart attack. The police report will say the man was dead before impact. The sedan crosses the center line and crashes directly into you. You shout out in surprise an instant before you're hit. Open your eyes. Close them. Open them. The windshield is spread out on your lap in a blanket of chipped ice. Smoke oozing from car engines. Your partner is slumped in the front seat beside you, eyes shut tight. You can't tell if she's breathing. You look back at your eight-year-old boy, seated in the back behind his mother, eyes wide open. He has been brought to silence by the shock. You look back just as your wife draws a large breath. The man and woman from the car in front of you arrive at your windows. Their teenage son takes your boy away and sits him down on a nearby grass embankment. You don't know it yet, but he has walked out of the wreck unharmed, except for a minor case of whiplash and a serious seatbelt burn on his chest. Your wife, eyes clenched shut, nods when you ask if she is okay. Later, you will learn she has broken an arm, both her legs, even breaks on both tibias. One of her heels has been crushed. Your feet are both broken. One is simple ankle break, the other a more complicated set of breaks inside the foot. They remain stuck up in the well and have been throbbing in pain. Your femur has snapped in two places, dead center and at the hip, cracking the patella in the process. Your sternum has cracked as well, along with 14 ribs. Later, a doctor will inform you that both your heart and lungs have been bruised and a small piece of spinal cord has chipped off. Lucky it didn't land somewhere it shouldn't, he will say. No obvious head injuries, no internal bleeding. You are lucky to be alive. All right, there you have it, everybody. Beginner's Guide to a Head-On Collision by Sebastian Matthews. Um, Out now from Red Him Press and Print, and an audio from us talking book. Sebastian, you're a badass. Um, hang out anytime. Do that again real soon. Uh, but anyway, yeah, everybody, thanks. Come do the same thing Sebastian just did. Come hang out. Come to the house. Record a book. Play some music. Dance around. Have a drink. Sing a song. 
whatever, whatever for everyone, whatever they want to do. Um, but yeah, go to talkingbook.pub. That's talkingbook.pub. Get Sebastian's book. Get other books that we've done, like Wait Till You See Me Dance by Debbil and Unferth. Hour of the Star, Clarice Lispector. 300 Arguments, Sarah Manguso. Sarah Book, Scott McClanahan. Sophia Michael Bible. Um, lots of books. Lots of great books out here. Uh, that we got to record because we're lucky as hell to be working with all these really cool people in such a great city like Asheville. Uh, but anyway, thanks a lot, everybody. Talk to you soon. Bye. Like a bishop who has forsaken sympathy Chasing sister squares I was lit before I knew that you were there Like an angel who has forsaken certainty Sleeping in the square I was lit before I knew the storm was passing over and the window.